Hi guys, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. My name's Harry, and I'm your host. Today, we're covering the Eastern Front from September 20th to September 30th. September 30th is the beginning of Operation Typhoon, so this episode will wrap things up, uh, everything that happened between then, and so hopefully I'll make following episodes easier to understand. We're going to cover the events on the different sectors, the general disposition of forces in anticipation of Operation Typhoon, alongside general concerns, and just generally wrap up loose ends and some things you might find interesting. So, let's get going. In the north, the last episode saw German attacks encircle Leningrad by land and push closer and closer to the city itself. As the battle raged on, there was no mistaking Germany's intentions towards the city. A September 22nd directive plainly stated that, quote, the Fuhrer had decided to erase the city of Petersburg from the face of the earth, unquote. As a solution, we propose to closely blockade the city and erase it from the earth by means of artillery fire of all calibers and continuous bombardment from the air, unquote. If there was any room for interpretation in that statement, Hitler's September 29th instructions saw that that would be ended. Hitler ordered that requests for a surrender resulting from the situation of the city will be declined since the problems of housing and feeding the population cannot and should not be solved by us. We are not interested in sustaining the existence of even a part of the population of this metropolis in the war. End quote. German commanders did not object to the idea of purposely starving 2.5 million people to death. Their only concern was whether soldiers, their soldiers, would be allowed to massacre civilians if they tried to flee the city. Ultimately, it was decided that the matter would be resolved, quote, by opening fire on civilians at an early stage so that the infantry is spared the task of having to shoot the civilians themselves. Returning to the strictly military, the transfer of armored and motorized units to Army Group Center had left Army Group North with only a skeletal 39th Panzer Corps, with one depleted Panzer Division and two motorized divisions. This, of course, meaning that if their blockade failed to bring down the city, von Lieb had few additional tools to do so. It's possible that this genocidal order, while certainly part of an overall policy, uh, the hunger plan uh, that the Germans imposed, which we'll discuss. But it's possible that while this policy was also influenced by the inefficiency of the German advance towards Leningrad, combined with the need to transfer forces to Army Group Center. Over the last three months, the German advance had slowed severely. In July, in Army Group North, it averaged 5 kilometers a day. In August, 2.2. And in September, 1.4. We won't cover activity in the center this week because there's just so little actual combat going on. As both sides were, of course, preparing for what came next, Operation Typhoon. But consider our segment regarding the uh, positioning and plans for Operation Typhoon as events for the center. In the south, German forces finished demolishing the southwestern front. Soviet resistance was fierce and it did inflict significant casualties on the German infantry but it was insufficient to create major breakouts or delay the destruction of the pocket for more than a few days. On September 20th, Mikhail Kirponos, commander of the Southwestern Front, was killed. He had been leading a combat group in an attempt to break out, but was surrounded by German forces and wounded. 
While fleeing from the Germans, shrapnel from an artillery shell mortally wounded him, and he died within a few minutes. One of the top Soviet commanders had died due to the foolish ineptitude of his higher-ups, that is to say, Stalin. Organized Soviet resistance in the pocket pretty much ended by September 24th, and the battle is typically marked as ending on the 26th. Within that main pocket, there are about 450,000 soldiers trapped, of which about 15,000 managed to escape. As much of German strength in the Ukraine moved north, remaining forces sought to capture eastern Ukraine and the Donbass region with its coal, steel, and industrial resources. German forces managed to establish bridgeheads in the Kharkov direction, but between ferocious Soviet attacks and the Germans' own disorganization following their expenditure at Kiev, they were unable to make good on them in September. These Soviet counterattacks also delayed a German advance south to the Sea of Azov, which threatened the major industrial center of Zaprosia. To finish up on Kiev, total Soviet losses in the disaster are difficult to calculate, and it depends on your time frame and how much credence you place on which sources. One common estimate, and uh, propagated by German sources, is 665,000 prisoners of war. Based on all available information, this is likely too high. Um, that's not to say that many casualties weren't suffered, but it might be a misinterpretation of when uh, they were taken. That is to say, a significant portion of that 665,000 figure comes from prisoners that were taken prisoner around Kiev and in the Battle of Kiev, but not really part of the Kiev pocket. So if we say the Kiev pocket or Kiev encirclement had 665,000 prisoners, that's kind of a stretch. It's also possible there was double counting, say between wounded and uh, captured. And we know at least some Soviet citizens were captured, uh, non-soldier Soviet citizens were captured and counted as POWs. However, from a strategic perspective, all this is kind of dowsing around the point. The true casualty number for the Kiev campaign was not far from that 665,000 figure. Um, the Southwestern Front was utterly demolished, losing most of its men and equipment and destroyed organizationally, and there were few units that could be quickly assigned to uh, Ukraine to protect what was left, left, leaving the gate wide open if the Germans chose to go that way. Many German commanders, as well as some contemporary authors, have argued to, to varying degrees that the Battle of Kiev was a waste of effort or a pyrrhic victory. Some argue that the Battle of Kiev delayed Operation Typhoon and that an earlier start, that is to say, earlier start by not attacking Kiev, would have allowed Typhoon to be successful. To me, this misses the point. The clearing of Army Group Center's right flank, the objective of the whole Kiev endeavor, was an absolutely necessary prerequisite to a an attack on Moscow. Otherwise, the Southwestern Front would have posed a major threat to Army Group Center. Anyway, uh, regarding Operation Typhoon, for the operation, Germany assembled the very best it could spare, stripping Army Group South and North bare to reinforce Box Army Group Center. Three bulked-up armies, the 9th, the 4th, and the 2nd, were employed. Each of these armies was assigned or worked with a Panzer Group, the 3rd, the 4th, and the 2nd, respectively. Compared to Army Group Center on June 22nd, at the beginning of Barbarossa, Box Command had grown from about 50 divisions to 75 divisions at the beginning of Typhoon. Manpower had increased from 1.3 million men to over 1.9 million. 
Tank strength was just marginally greater than it had been at the beginning of Barbarossa, and half of Bach's tanks were from the newly transferred 2nd and 5th Panzer Divisions, and 300 production tanks allied for the operation. Aircraft had experienced an absolute decline. Luftwaffe II began the campaign with about 1,250 aircraft, but by the beginning of Typhoon was down to around 1,000. Um, but the situation even then wasn't quite as good for the Germans as it might appear. When Army Group Center began Operation Barbarossa, it was expected to cover a front line about 500 kilometers long. Now, it was responsible for 760 kilometers, which effectively canceled out the increased numbers. It was essentially on par in terms of concentration per kilometer. This massive assembly of forces in the uh, confined space would also stretch the burden logistics system for the Germans to its absolute limits and could not be maintained for very long. For Operation Typhoon, German forces were split into three sectors. The 9th Army and Panzer Group III were arranged north of the Smolensk-Moscow Highway and had around 25 divisions worth of forces. This included 18 infantry, 3 panzer, and 2 motorized infantry divisions. South of Kirov, the town of Kirov, was the 2nd Army and Panzer Group II, with 24 divisions, 14 infantry, 5 panzer, 4 motorized infantry, and 1 cavalry. Between the two were the 4th Army and Panzer Group IV. This was likely the most powerful of the three, especially uh, in terms of its concentration. It included 15 infantry, 6 panzer, and 2 motorized infantry divisions, including the undamaged 2nd and 5th panzer divisions. The Soviets had also worked feverishly to assemble their forces. They had created a multi-echelon defense in-depth network. On the front line, the Western Front under Konev faced off against German forces north of the Smolensk-Moscow Highway. In this area, Konev could muster 23 rifle divisions, one mechanized division, and a single tank brigade. Deployed further east were 11 divisions under Budeny's reserve front. Facing German forces south of the highway and north of Kirov were 17 rifles, 3 cavalry, and 3 mechanized divisions, as well as 8 tank brigades. These came from Konev's western front, as well as Budeny's reserve front. Deployed eastward were 10 rifle divisions under the reserve front. Rounding out the Soviet forces were Aramenko's Bryansk front, positioned south of Kirov. Aramenko had 26 rifle divisions, 3 cavalry divisions, a tank division, and 4 tank brigades. However, here there were no forces deployed to the east. Frontline Soviet forces held a line running along the Desna and Sudost rivers. To the east, Soviet forces held a defensive belt between Rzhev and Vyazhma. Finally, there was a defensive line even further east called the Mosaisk Line. Altogether, Red Army forces facing Army Group Center numbered about 1.25 million men and 1,000 tanks, giving the German forces roughly a 1.5 to 1 advantage in both of these. The ratio in aircraft was similar. German forces hoped to encircle and destroy German formations near Vyazma and Bryansk. With this done, the operational freedom gains would allow for an encirclement of Moscow from the north and south. This plan finally did away with the mythical AA line at its end goal of the German advance, and the new goal was a line just east of Moscow significantly to the west. In the weeks preceding the beginning of Typhoon, German morale had reached a pretty grim low amongst many soldiers, not to the extent that units were breaking up or fleeing without orders, discipline generally still ruled the day, but in the face of heavy losses with no end in sight, German troops bemoaned their situation. Some maintained their ideological zeal, the uh, 
Hitler and Goebbels promised that victory was just around the corner and Soviet forces were collapsing. But most troops fell into a sort of grim determination, just keeping up the fight, keeping their heads down, and hoping it would all be over soon. To go along with Typhoon, Goebbels' propaganda ministry unleashed a flurry of optimistic messaging, assuring both the troops and the home front that the war would be over in just a month or two. For many who were lacking any reason to be optimistic anymore, they readily embraced this. Indeed, Goebbels thought that many people had gone too far in the other direction. On September 27th, his diary remarked that, quote, At times, the mood of the people goes far beyond the real possibilities. Once again, one hopes that this winter the war will be over, and we will have very much to do in the next few weeks to pull back the now extreme optimism to a normal level, unquote. Various commanders and uh, political officials proclaimed that they would soon finish off the last tatters of the Red Army. For any soldiers, though, their combat experience left them with an unshakable feeling in the pit of their stomach that the Soviet Union was not about to fall. German forces had won victory after victory after victory. They had destroyed huge pockets of Smolensk, at Kiev, at Uman, at Minsk, at Bialystok. They had blockaded and encircled the second largest city in the Soviet Union. They had destroyed, they'd taken millions of prisoners, and the Soviets were still fighting ferociously. So for many, they saw little reason why these victories should come easily, and if they came at all, that they would uh, guarantee final success. I also want to point out the toll that other fronts and uh, German occupation was having on the German war effort in the East. Admittedly, the Eastern Front was by far the largest use of resources, especially for land warfare. But the North African Front held up two panzer divisions, no mean feat, and was a major drain for tanks and planes. Uh, the vast stretches of land that Germany occupied all over Europe also proved costly. What's interesting to me is how these occupied territories, much to Germany's shock, began to require heavy weapons and equipment like tanks. By October 8th, 110 tanks were either being used or in transit to the occupied USSR for anti-partisan activities. Norway required 100, France 140, and Yugoslavia almost 400. And this doesn't take into account Denmark, Greece, Poland, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Altogether, it would not be a stretch to say that the Nazis were dedicating 1,000 a or more tanks for occupation, and likely 750,000 to a million men in the occupation. Admittedly, these tanks were almost all captured from the French and the British, so this was not technically hindering production. And these tanks had a fairly short lifespan due to uh, lack of spare parts, so if they were on the East Front, they would not have lasted very long. Even so, this represents a pretty tremendous strain. Yugoslavia is, this is a bit of a side note, but Yugoslavia is a fascinating case as incredibly powerful and organized partisan movements were already beginning to form and were operating very effectively. The most effective group were communist partisans led by Josip Broz Tito, who would later go on to lead, found and lead uh, communist Yugoslavia. By late September, partisans under Tito managed to seize control of significant territory in Serbia with a population of 300,000, and they founded the short-lived Republic of Ufizi. Halder was actually forced to transfer a frontline infantry division from the Eastern Front to Yugoslavia to restore the situation. Speaking of uh, foreign countries and such, uh, I think it's interesting how at this stage, 
is the early stage. We see that many of Germany's allies want to get off the bus, so to speak. It might seem paradoxical that after months of great victories, now, when things look like they might be coming to an end, Germany's allies are peeling off. But if we look at it, there are some pretty good reasons. For one thing, Hitler has been saying that the Soviets are all but finished for months now. If that's false, why do you want to continue fighting if you're a Hungarian or an Italian? And if it's true, why does Germany need our help? If uh, the whole structure is rotten, as Hitler said, then Germans should be able to finish tipping it over. Moreover, most of Germany's allies didn't claim land in the USSR as Germany did. Of the two that did, Finland and Romania, they had recovered most or all of what they had lost, and uh, in Romania's case, everything they wanted. For Finland in particular, radical expansionism and fascism never gained that much popular support, so once Finland had retaken what it had lost in the Winter War, nobody saw much reason to continue. Moreover, uh, casualties and the economic strain of a, of a total war like this were a tremendous burden upon the Finnish country. You know, it's a small country, small economy, typically small military. So Finnish leaders and Finnish people were quite eager to leave the war or vastly decrease their commitment. And the casualties and strains of the war were severe, like I said, even for small countries. Hungary's mobile corps, most of its contribution at this time to the Eastern Front, was an assembly of the few motorized and armored units the country had. And they were badly mauled in the Ukraine, assisting Army Group South. And their losses in equipment had more or less turned them into an infantry unit. The Italian Expeditionary Corps did see some success, but the existence of the Corps was itself kind of a symptom of Mussolini's foolishness, his decision to send most of the best of what the Italian military had, not in North Africa to help recover his territories or not in policing his occupied territories in Albania or Yugoslavia or Greece, but to the Eastern Front. What's that about? It's not like Italy had the trained manpower and advanced equipment to spare that I could go throwing them away in a place where it had no interest. Romanian forces might have been the worst off. They had played a very important, if unappreciated, role in the success of Army Group South. But Romanian troops lacked the heavy equipment of the German tanks and anti-tank guns and that sort of thing, and they took major casualties. In August and September, Romanian forces, which made up about 12% of total Axis forces in the East, took 30% of casualties. Speaking of casualties, kind of jumping to another point, I wanted to give you a bit of a better idea about Germany's manpower situation. Because when I've mentioned it before, it's mostly been in a vague context, like Germany has manpower problems. So let's take a bit of a closer look. In March 1941, Fritz Fromm, who commanded the German, the German replacement army, reported that the Austere, German forces in the East, would have access to roughly 400,000 replacements, 400,000 replacements for casualties. Uh, the German replacement army was basically responsible for the training, uh, the induction, and the raising of replacement units and just replacements for casualties. Um, so there are 400,000 replacements estimated to be available for Barbarossa. Interestingly, prior to the beginning of the invasion, Franz Halder estimated that uh, as the campaign lasted into the end of September, the Austria would likely sustain 475,000 casualties, meaning that even the highest German authorities 
expected that reinforcements would not be sufficient for losses. In reality, casualties to the end of September numbered over 550,000. Coupled with chronic and severe transportation problems, German units are often only receiving enough replacements to make up a third, maybe a half of their losses. This lack of manpower has a few causes. The primary is that Germany was not demographically suited for what it was trying to do. That is, to maintain a huge military, be an industrial giant, and be as self-sufficient as possible in terms of agriculture and resources. There simply were not enough people in Germany, especially young men, to do this. By summer of 1941, 85% of men between 20 and 30 years old, kind of prime military age, were already in the military. Whoever remained at home, who, you know, any men of that age that remained at home, were either there for health reasons or they had a central job. They could not, it didn't make sense for them to join the military. Many older men uh, in their 30s or 40s were being employed in occupation and garrison duties in the conquered territories, or they themselves uh, were in a social or economic position where they could not afford to be sent to the front lines. As things stood, if the war continued to rage, exacting heavy casualties, Germany would be forced to either accept a decline in military production or decline in the size of its military. Were there options to be had to help the situation from within Germany's population? Yes, but they were generally insufficient for the totality of Germany's long-term needs. Uh, also, before we get into that, it's worth pointing out that the logistic constraints on the Eastern Front would likely have severely reduced the efficacy and the plausibility of significantly expanding the Austria in the short term. That is to say, even if a million prime military-aged men popped into existence for the Germans, they couldn't have put all those on the Eastern Front. It would have destroyed the logistics system. So the supply of reinforcements right now was more relevant as a long-term policy, the ability to continue growing the army alongside the logistics system, or at least sustain it in face of casualties, rather than a very short-term, like, let's put as many troops as we can in the East. Anyway, returning to what Germany could have done to increase its manpower. At this point, as I said, Germany had largely exhausted its pool of military-aged men. Perhaps something more could have been squeezed out of the male population, but not nearly enough to remedy the situation without severely impacting the economy. Another option was to place women in jobs held by men to free those men up for service in the military, or, kind of step up from that, employing women in non-combat roles in the military, uh, administrative or kind of stuff like that, to free up uh, the men who had been doing those jobs for combat duty. The former, employing women in typically male jobs is a sensible idea, and every country in World War II more or less did it. But by 1941, it was not really possible for Germany. Contrary to popular belief, that's not because the Third Reich was so misogynistic that they were unwilling to employ women, even in the face of imminent disaster. Certainly Nazi Germany was extremely misogynistic, but on this matter, pragmatism had ruled the day. In fact, the reason why the option of employing more women wasn't really viable in 1941 was because women had already been so thoroughly mobilized into the workforce in the preceding years. At the outbreak of war in 1939, German women had a far higher labor force participation rate, that is, the percentage of German women uh, who were working outside the home. They had a far higher labor force participation rate than those in Britain, 
And Britain did not equalize this until 1944, and America actually never caught up. So that was less a matter of not wanting to employ women rather than just not needing to because of how large the American population was. But anyway, yes, it was possible for the Germans to increase the layer force participation rate of women beyond what it was. However, that same criticism can be applied in even greater margin to the UK, to the, to the US. So I don't really see that as a, the most viable. The other option, employing women in non-combat military roles to free up men was much more politically contentious. To employ women in factories is one thing, for women to be in uniform was quite another thing to Nazi leadership. And while I haven't read enough on this specific topic to speak authoritatively, I get the sense that it was feared that taking this step would have created serious unease and outcry uh, among both men and women, soldier and civilian. What would that have said, for instance, uh, about the German war effort that the government had to put uh, women in the military? Uh, for a nation that had been fed a steady diet of propaganda that said women's role was to produce Aryan babies and you know, be housewives, basically, that would have been a huge contradiction that would have sparked a lot of unappealing questions for the German leadership. With the German population largely tapped out, leaders began to look to their occupied territories. France, Poland, Greece, Yugoslavia, the Low Countries, Denmark, Norway, and now large swaths of the USSR. Between them, these nations held well over 100 million people in huge industrial capacity. And effectively employed, these territories could resolve Germany's labor problems and greatly expand its industrial capacity. But of course, the vast majority of people in these countries had no interest in aiding the German war effort. Moreover, the industrial capacity and general economy of these territories had been crippled, as the Germans had destroyed much of them in the war, and what was left had largely been looted by the Germans to supply their war chest. The Third Reich was also rerouting large amounts of fuel and other resources from its occupied areas to resolve Germany's own shortages, meaning that many factories in these countries couldn't function even if they had enough willing laborers. Even in those factories that did have the resources and did have the laborers, a combination of active resistance movements, things like sabotage, and general worker apathy drastically reduced production. For German observers, this seems to suggest that only one policy would solve Germany's problems. Slave labor from the occupied territories on a massive scale, or even conscription of non-Germans into the Wehrmacht. Although at this time, many German leaders refused to consider employing insufficiently Aryan people in the military. It's this situation that faced Germany if the war with the USSR was not brought to a quick end in the near future which only underscores that Germany was putting all of its chips in on successive typhoon and domestically didn't have much more to give if that didn't work. In international news, U.S. Naval Command initiates a shoot-on-site policy for access ships in American waters on September 26. Many in Germany now see U.S. entrance into the war as imminent. On the 27th, the first Liberty ship, the SS Patrick Henry, was launched. Liberty ships were uh, cargo ships designed to be cheap and easy to mass produce and intended to ship Lend-Lease to Britain and also to the Soviet Union. Speaking of which, on September 29th, the Moscow conference begins. W. Avril Harriman was the American delegate, Lord Beaverbrook, the British delegate, and Vyacheslav Molotov represented the USSR. The conference concluded 
on October 1st, and all parties signed on to an agreement known as the First Protocol. The First Protocol formalized and specified then-lease agreements between the three powers. It guaranteed the shipment of 400 aircraft, 1,500 tanks, not 1,500, 500, and 10,000 trucks a month until June 1942, among other supplies. If the Germans had known these exact numbers, they would have been stunned. The Germans would not produce 500 tanks a month until December 1942, and the British and the Americans, at this point probably mainly the British, were just giving these away. To end with, it's interesting to note the comparison between Hitler's invasion of the USSR and Napoleon's own invasion of the Russian Empire about 130 years earlier. Without railroads, without tanks, without cars, Napoleon had invaded on June 24th, just two days after Barbarossa would begin, and had reached Moscow on September 15th. That's 84 days. When Operation Typhoon kicked off on September 30th, Hitler was some 300 kilometers from Moscow after over 100 days of fighting. Make a bat what you will. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me. You can reach me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Otherwise, my name's Harry, and I'll see you next time.